First, two things before I jump into the sermon proper. Um, Mark and Ray, I know you came here to, to say thanks to, the, to us and the support, and we received that. But on behalf of this church and, and on behalf of the Lord, I want to say thank you to you for your years of service for the gospel. And it's, I mean, the passage is totally fitting where Paul, who doesn't know what's next for him, is writing back to the Philippians saying, okay, you guys now have to be, be citizens of the gospel and, and take this forward. And, and so, uh, anyways, just thank you. And, and I, I pray that we can bless you as we, you know, have this time. And, and just in case it, you didn't hear, there is cake afterwards. So definitely come and, come and say hello. The second thing I want to, to say is we are fired up about VBS. Like this, this is a big thing. Like we got, we're near 100 kids already. 101 registered. And it's going to go over that. And so, so we have Mr. Spaceman here uh, to represent that. And so I, I'm this, uh, interesting. So Susan's plan... <laughs> was to put Mr. Spaceman right behind me as I preached. And I'm like, no, no. I've seen too many movies where such things come to life. You know, it would just, I just couldn't handle that one. So anyways, but, but we have one week left to get everything ready. And I know, thank you for all you who are ready to volunteer and getting, getting all that set. Keep it up. Let's, let's make this the best VBS ever. So... The big question that I think jumps out of our text as I looked at it is, how does what we believe about life after death, what we, what we will happen to us when we die, how does that belief affect how we live our life? Or more specifically, what do we live our life for? This world will tell us to live for the moment, to live for power, to gain power, to live for fame, right? Make a name for yourself, to live for pleasure, like to live for um, adventure or achievement. Like this world will try to get us to spend our lives for all these things that will, that will be for ourself, to, for our own self-honor. I was listening uh, just there was a song that came up in a movie. I wasn't even watching it, but I just kind of heard a little bit of the song. And it, the song went like this, says, cast off all limits and bounds and live for, the, you know, live for the moment, live for the pleasure that you can have. Right? That is the message of this world. The Apostle Paul says something I think we really just need to try to get our head around. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And we could just take that as a little slogan that sounds nice. I think, this is, I think this is an amazing statement in contrast to what the world says we should live for. And to highlight that, I want to start by actually talking about um, Caesar. So, so when Paul, the situation of this, this letter is Paul is under house arrest. He's awaiting a, a trial before Caesar or Caesar's tribunal. He had appealed to Caesar on a case, and so now he's actually under guard, and 
This is between 60 and 62 AD. So that means the Caesar at the time was someone who was born with the name Lucius. Lucius was, um, his mother is Agrippina, and his mother married Emperor Claudius, the previous Roman emperor. And so at age 13, she convinced Claudius to adopt Lucius as his own son. And so he then became Nero, Claudius Caesar Augustus. You get, get all those names when you become the heir. And when he was 16, Claudius dies very mysteriously, kind of has a, has a fit. And pretty much the historians think Agrippina killed her own husband, poisoning him with a mushroom. And so she wanted to put Nero on the throne. He was 16. There was another potential heir who was too young. So she wanted to do it at that time so that her son would be the one who would become the next emperor and she could you know, guide him in his, you know, in his young age. And at first, Nero did have good advisors. Uh, the, the, the senator Seneca was one of his tutors and also, you know, initial advisor. He had a, another military advisor called Burrus. And, and so at first, I think things were, you know, steered in the right direction with, with this advice. But slowly, Nero realized he could do whatever he wanted. He had no limits. If he said it should happen, it would happen. And no 16-year-old or 18-year-old should be given that kind of, of ability. And, and so he could ignore his advisors. He could ignore his mother. And he got worse and worse. He, he, he started by, well, he could sleep with whomever he wanted. And in fact, he demanded that they set up brothels. If he was taking a boat trip, they would, on the Tiber... He would demand they set up brothels along the way so that he could engage in those. He would sleep with the wives of other, other people in the court. Um, he would, in the, in the evenings, at, at night, he would have, go with a group of, of his youths. And he would, I mean, he was a youth himself. He was, what, 16, 18, you know, in his early 20s eventually. But he would accost and even kill people in the street. They'd find some random stranger beat him up, and maybe even kill him and toss him into the sewer. He could get away with it. He was Caesar. And he kept getting worse and worse. He eventually cast off his advisors completely. He loved the adulation of the crowds. It wasn't enough to be, you know, emperor. And, and there were expectations for the Roman emperor to be kind of staid and proper. He, he didn't want that. He wanted to be a theater uh, he wanted the adulation of the crowd, so he, he put on great games in the Colosseum, and so he loved to have the crowd cheer him and make them happy, make the people happy, and then he started doing his own, adding to that. Eventually, he held chariot races, and he participated as a chariot racer, and somehow he won even when his chariot broke down and he didn't cross the finish line. Like, so, so he just loved the adulation of the crowds. He, he started to get rid of anyone who got in his way. He had his own mother, Agrippina, executed. He had his wife executed. He had his uh, top general, Burrus, executed. So finally his behavior got so bad, there started to be rebellions. And he, he got nervous. He fled 
The Senate declared him an enemy of the people, and he, he knew the end was coming because he engendered so much anger against him, and so he committed suicide by having his, his few remaining servants stab him and kill him. That was in 68. Um, and I didn't even mention the, the great fire that took place, which pro- wasn't likely started by Nero. It was just a, a normal fire. But he took advantage of that to build great buildings. Uh, uh, he wanted to be like a Neuropolis within Rome. And then when he, that proved unpopular, he blamed the fire on Christians. And so that's how Nero got known as a great persecutor of the church. He blamed the Christians and started persecuting them in that time. So that is someone, an example of someone who lived for power, fame, possessions, wealth, achievement. He wanted all that. In the meanwhile, the Apostle Paul is sitting awaiting trial, not knowing what's going to happen next in his life. And while he's doing that, he has the ability to write letters. And in fact, we talked last week that Paul actually rejoices in his arrest because it says it enabled the gospel to, to go to new places. It says the, the whole palace guard has heard now about Jesus because of Paul's arrest. And so, so Paul is rejoicing in that. Um, while he is under house arrest, he's actually reliant upon support. And the Philippian church had sent, they both have been praying for him and supporting him. So this So now starting in verse 19, this kind of highlights Paul's situation where he says, for I know that through your prayers, so they had been praying for him, they also mentioned later that they had sent financial support, um, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So he got the prayer and support of fellow believers, but even more, it says the help of the Holy Spirit. That is what's sustaining Paul in this time. And so he's, he's trusting that ultimately this will turn out for his deliverance. Now, the word translated deliverance could be also translated salvation. And there's a question. Does Paul mean that he knows the trial will go okay and that he'll be released, deliverance? Or does he mean even if the trial goes against him, that he will have salvation in this moment, that he has salvation resting, rest assured to be with the Lord. I think it's actually the latter. I think he's talking because I don't think he knows what's going to happen with this trial. And I was thinking he's saying, whatever happens, my salvation is, is secure with the Lord. He's actually quoting in that end of that verse, he's quoting a, a passage from Job 13 that says, this will be my salvation, where, where Job who had, had everything go wrong for him, is, is trusting in the fact that, Joe, that God will be his salvation even in the midst of all the hardships. Paul's quoting that verse saying, whatever happens, this will be my salvation. I'm holding on to the truth. So that's Paul's situation. Paul's hope. His hope is that Christ would be honored through his life or his death. Paul is not worried about being executed. What he, what he doesn't want to do more than anything else is he doesn't want to shame Christ by fear. He says, I hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but will face what I have with courage, with full courage. You can imagine that many 
in similar circumstances, knowing, you know, they could be executed, would do whatever they could to survive. Beg, plead, cry, break down in fear. Paul says, I, I want to I go to the end with full courage and, and honor Christ in the way I face death. Whatever happens. Paul has yielded his life to his Lord. Death holds no fear for him. So Paul's situation, Paul's hope. The third thing I see in this verse 21 is Paul's confidence. To live is Christ, to die is gain. He knows his life belongs to Christ, and so at death, he will be with Christ. He says later, he, he will de- it, to better to depart and be with him. He has confidence in the reality that Jesus is Lord, and he is on the throne room of, of, of the universe with his Father. And so that when Paul trusted his life to Jesus, he made the right bet. That Jesus was the one raised from the dead. And so with Christ, we get eternal life with him. We, we did a few weeks back a, a, a sermon where I said, better is one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. Paul saying, I made that bet. One day with Jesus Christ is better than a thousand set free to do what I want. So that's Paul's hope, that he would in no way be ashamed, but that he would honor Christ all the way to the end. And so we get to the last part of this is Paul's attitude. So verses 22 to 26, Paul has a debate with himself. He's like, hmm, would it be better for me to lose this trial or win this trial? Huh. Well, if I lose, they execute me, and so I get to be, go, go be with Christ. That's great, you know. At, I get to go depart, be with him. So if I lose, oh, that, that'd, be really, that'd be the best thing. But, well, it, I really, if they let me go, then I could continue to spread the gospel, and probably God, that's probably what God wants for me so that I could go back to Philippi and, and that I can you know, convinced of this, I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith. Like Paul thinking, I think God still has work for me to do, so I think I'm going to uh, actually survive this, but whatever. You know, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's like he's debating with himself whether it's better to be executed. How could you stop? Think about the Romans' attitude. How can you stop this thing? Right? Like, what are you going to do? The soldiers come up. If, if, we, if, we ha- if we believers in Christ had this kind of attitude, how could the world stop us? Soldier says, I'm going to kill you. Excellent. I enter the presence of God. I behold the one seated upon the throne. Okay? Well, I'm not going to kill you. Awesome. God must have some work for me yet to do. I get to go do it. Well, then I'm going to beat you and make you suffer. Cool. I get to share in the sufferings of my Lord who suffered and died for me. That's Paul's attitude. Can we, can we get there? Um, so, so doing that, then he shared with the Philippians what he wants for them. So the first part of this passage is Paul's situation and attitude. And then he switched church talking about the, the, the church in Philippi. One thing that helps understand is the city of Philippi It's in Greek. It's in Macedon area, and its name actually comes from uh, Alexander the Great's father, Philip, but it had been rebuilt as a Roman city, a military outpost, and populated 
with a lot of ex-soldiers, Roman ex-soldiers. So it had a very pro-Rome, strong Roman feel to it. And so you see that in some of the themes that I think come out. So Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Hidden in that is a word that's hard to translate, and so it doesn't come up in there. It's the verb form of the word citizenship. And so I think another way to translate it would be, be worthy citizens of the gospel, or behave as worthy citizens of the gospel. The Philippians would have valued their Roman citizenship. But even more, he's saying, value your citizenship in the kingdom of Christ. Right? Value your citizenship in, with the, that you have through the gospel. And so live in a way that, that, that honors that, that, that sets that up. So in his letter to the church in Rome earlier, Paul had written this in 12, and I think this, this kind of maybe gets a picture of what does it mean to live as worthy citizens of the gospel It says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It says, live in a way that your life makes the gospel more attractive, not less so. Right? Don't don't live in a way that makes other people question whether they actually think Christianity is a good thing. Right? Live such that you are, are doing good. Now, that doesn't mean they'll always approve of everything we do, but, but live as citizens. Live in a way that helps advance the gospel. Now, I know we live in a world that loves to portray Christianity in a negative light, right? You, you may be movies or whatever. You oftentimes see the, the Christian or, you know, the pastor's the bad guy at times, or they, they make our faith look silly or stupid, I, I'm convinced we have to, part, part of overcoming that is us being a blessing within the community God has put us. And I think the world just breezes over the fact that Christians are the ones feeding the poor. Christians are the ones investing in, in, in single moms and, and showing them. Christians are the ones that help pregnant women when they, they need support for that. And that is vital. It's I think when I was younger, I, didn't, I just thought the only thing that's important is the preaching, the message. I've come to see that it is our, our, ser- our service within the community that actually helps advance the gospel. We are to behave as, as citizens worthy of the gospel or, or worthy citizens. So that's the first charge. The second charge in this that he gives them in just, in just verse 27, stand firm in one spirit. Um, so stand firm in one spirit with one mind. So it's emphasizing that they hold together. And I think the picture out of this is, is, comes out of the military, right? He's writing to probably ex-soldiers. And it's this idea in, in the ancient world, you won battles by holding the line together. I know when you see movies and they all have swords like that, like they all go like do martial arts and they're all fighting individually. But in, in real battle in the Roman world, they fought side by side, your shield protecting not only yourself, but the guy next to you. And he's saying, be like that, 
right? In the, the opposition you face within this world, the hostility, the, the slings and arrows that, that come at us, stand firm side by side. So your shield is protecting not only you, but the guy beside you. Don't let things move you back. And the, the army that won was, was the one that refused to be pushed backward. Because if you got pushed backward slowly, you'd end up on the run, and then you'd be vulnerable and you'd lose. Saying, you're going to face opposition, you're going to face hostility, but don't do it alone. First of all, face it with the Holy Spirit in one spirit. It's the Holy Spirit can give us the strength to face whatever this world throws at us. And then face it together in one mind. Agree together that you're going to walk with Christ as a, as a, as a, as a community. That's, that's what we're about here at East Glenville. We're learning to, to love God and love others as we follow Jesus together. We're going to stand firm in one spirit, in one mind. So that's, that's the, the second charge. The third charge is similar. It says striving side by side for the gospel. So while the standing firm is defensive, striving side by side is offensive. Right? You're, you're walking together, but now you're advancing the gospel um, the message. The kingdom of God grows when we share the good news of Jesus and someone catches it. Their heart is ready. God's been at work so that they're ready to, to hear and understand and it grabs a hold of their heart and they say yes to Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and maybe you're not sure, you're kind of investigating, know this. God the Father loved you so much. He sent His Son into the world to, to bring you to him, that you might have a, a, a relationship, that you might know your heavenly father. And Jesus um, not only lived as an example, he gave his life to free us from the guilt and condemnation of our sin. Because we've all fallen short. We all blow it. We all are weak at times. And so God gave his son that we might be forgiven and have a relationship with our, our Heavenly Father. That's the gospel in a nutshell, right? And we are, we are called, as those who put our faith in that, to try to advance the gospel as we can. And the funny thing is God will put us into situations where we, we have that opportunity. And sometimes it's unexpected. So I, I went and saw Jane Stevenson this week. She's at Glendale, right? That's the one... Yeah. Um, so she got out of the hospital, which is good. She's doing rehab. And I know she was hoping to come home. I, she may be home by now. She's home. All right. But so while she was in Glendale, she said, you know, she didn't want to be there. She wanted to be home. And we prayed for that. But she's like, while I'm here, because Jane was a nurse, she got a chance to, to get to know the nurses. And she says, I had two opportunities to share the gospel there in the, the, the nursing home. Right? That's how it works. Striving side by side for the good news of Jesus. And then verse 28, and not frightened by anything. Our faith and courage in the midst of opposition, in the midst of trials, it says it's a sign to the watching world. It says this is a clear sign to them. Think about how can we persuade people 
especially people who have their minds set against the things of God, who have who've been told that Christians are evil, who, who have this negative perception of Christianity, how could we ever convince them? Does our doing well, our prosperity, convince them? Not really. You know what can? Courage in the midst of hardship. That cannot easily be discounted. Right? That cannot easily be, be thrown away. And sometimes it's our, our, how we face things like cancer or difficult medical conditions, or it could be how we face um, the little things. Back to Romans 12. I, I think this is a great passage. I want, I'd love you to, to read, but verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So if someone insults you or blames you unfairly or, or makes a snide remark about our faith in Christ, right? We can get defensive. I know I can get defensive, right? My guard is up. What if instead? Opportunity, right? If, if, they're, if they're mean to us, we can be nice to them instead, right? That's, 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 that's what we do, right? That, that actually can open up a door to like, why are they reacting this way? I don't understand. I'm, they're trying to get a reaction from us, and we go the opposite direction, like, no matter how mean they are, we're going to be nice. Like, that has power. It has power to convince when nothing else will. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them that they're on the wrong side. They're facing destruction, but, but you have salvation from God. And then, verse 29 and 30. Jumping down to 30, Paul says this. He says, you are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and that I still have. So that word conflict could, could just as easily be translated contest. I think Paul's saying that there's this great contest for, for what truth will be received, for, the, for what, what will be the, the, the views and the attitudes, what, what kingdom will prevail, right? And, and so he had that contest as you're, you're in the same contest that you saw I had. And so on behalf of that, it's, it's granted to you for the sake of Christ that you're going to be a part of this contest and that you should not only believe in him but suffer for him as you engage in it. It's like an athletic event, right? That's, the word, that's where that word comes from. It's an athletic event. And if you're competing in an event, you've got you to work hard in the midst of it. And it might be uncomfortable. Like if you're running hard, you're short of breath, but you want to run as hard as you can to do as well as you can in that contest. That's the, that's the image he, he's doing. Um, I believe our world is a lot like the Roman Empire in many ways. I keep seeing things that, that resonate. And there is a battle over truth. We live in a world where everyone says, well, I have my truth. And, my tr and everyone wants to promote their truth. Not the truth, their truth. And, and they, they want to use power in some way to force others to accept their truth. Um, no, people, you need to listen to, to my truth, and I don't care what you have to say. And what we can get caught up in this. Christians, we can, get, we can get caught up in thinking we have to gain power, political power, cultural power, so that we can just tell everyone what to believe. I would love to do it that way, but it doesn't work. We have to persuade. 
we have to be proponents of the gospel. If we got political power like that, the message of the gospel probably would be lost. Because then we just want to defeat our enemies. We wage battle in this. We fight this contest differently than the powers of this world. We fight this battle striving side by side with the good news of God's grace. Back to Romans 12. I think this is telling us, how do we engage in this contest? And and it says, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's how we fight this contest. How we promote the gospel. How do we get there? If, as Paul says, to live as Christ, to die as gain, that, that mindset is completely foreign to this world. How, and it, does, it will not come naturally. It is wisdom that comes from a different source. And so, um, and that whole idea of, of going against the pattern of this world by, you know, the pattern of the world is repay evil with evil. Romans 12 is, is saying something completely different. Repay evil with good. That's how you're going to win. How do we get there? To live as Christ, to die as gain. I want to just think on that a little bit as we kind of head towards the, the end of this message. To live is Christ. Let's break him apart. Paul is saying, I find my true life by yielding my life to Christ. Just as he gave his life for me, I give my life in service to him and his kingdom. I don't serve myself. Instead, I find my true self by serving him and others as he leads. This is a repeated idea that Paul has in his gospel. So let me give you two, two places to find it. 2 Corinthians 5, and these are on your handout if you want to see them. It, it, 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For the love of Christ controls us or compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And if he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you get that? It's a little complicated, but it's saying he gave his life for all people, for, for, for us. And therefore, our hearts are compelled. We give our lives for him. To live is Christ. Galatians 2.20. I would encourage you to memorize Galatians 2.20 and repeat it to yourself often. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I live while I have this body, I'm going to live in him, to live as Christ. The other half of that is to die is gain. And it's saying that when we depart, we have confidence that we will be in eternal life with Christ when it's all over. Now, I think in this passage, Paul is pointing to the intermediate state, intermediate state, rather than the future resurrection. Paul clearly teaches about a future resurrection, and 
that, that will mean that our eternal state will be, we'll have a body. We'll not just be spiritual. And Paul says there will come a day when Christ will return, um, the, day it's, the day of the last trumpet, when the bodies that we have, if we're still alive, our body will be given a resurrected resurrection body like Jesus had. Or if we're dead, we'll be given, our bodies will be restored to us. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall all be changed. So that's the future resurrection. So we know that. We know that one day we'll have a resurrection body and live in the eternal kingdom. The, what he's talking about here, though, is, is what about before that day? Because that day is still in the future. What happens if we die in the here and now? Well, that's what we call the intermediate state. It's before we get our resurrected bodies, while our corpse is in the ground, but our soul is alive with Christ. And it says when Christians die, they go where Christ is. Apostles' Creed, where is Christ? Seated at the, the right hand of the Father. So that means if we depart and be, go with him, we, are, we gain immediate entrance into the throne, heavenly throne room. And in Revelation, it talks about the one who's seated on the throne. And I believe that, if, that to behold God in that way, and it'll be kind of in our, in our soul, in our spirit, we, we will behold him. I believe that will be total and utter bliss. What did Jesus say to the criminal? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Revelation describes it as being rest. You know, we rest from our labors. We'll have this, this peace because we'll see God. Our Catholic friends talk about the beatific vision, and I think this they got right, right? Seeing God, it will, it'll be beautiful beyond what we can imagine. And we'll just behold and because we won't have bodies, it, it won't be like we're, you know, I'm tired of sitting here, you know. It, it, we won't get tired of it. And then we'll be giving our bodies back when the twinkling, that last trumpet thing. But, but until then, we'll just behold the one seated upon the throne, and it will be joy and peace and, and bliss. Um, but, but what about our lives here on earth? How, how does that affect that experience? Well, we know it's not that we earn our way in. But, but our lives do matter. And, and the way it matters is what's called a crown. The, the scriptures talk about the crown that we gain from our life on earth. That we, the, the good that we do, the crowns that we have represent the good things that we do. Our service to God, our faithfulness through hardship, our, our times when we were afraid but we told our friend, about faith anyways, or we, or we did something good for our neighbor, all of those things. See, I think because of the grace of Christ, the, the, the failings and the sins and the junk will be washed away, and all that will remain will be the, 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 the good things, the things we did for, for this. I have, an, I have a new analogy I thought of this morning. So, so Ken and I went to play disc golf the other day. And, and my game was not very pretty. And so out of 18 holes, I had, a, I had a pretty bad score. But you know what? I got three pars, right? So all I'm going to remember is I got three pars out of that. 
So all the other ones, they don't count. And so my, that's my new way of playing disc golf. I'm only going to count how many pars I get. I think that's what it's going to be. Like the crown are the, 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 good, the good things where all the rest were saved by God's grace. And, and what are we going to do with that crown? Do we, walk, do we walk around? Do we strut? Look at me. Hey, when I was on earth, you should have seen me. I, you know, I, I don't think so. In fact, we sang a song, did we not? In Revelation 4, it says, what do we do with those crowns? The 24 elders, I think we're going to be just with them doing this, fell down before him who's seated on the throne. They worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast down their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you. We get that. We get. Take whatever things we did, and we cast it before God. Jesus, I want to give this to you. I want you to get all the honor. I believe if we know that that's happening, if we have confidence in that, that will give us the power to live life a new way. To not be the Nero, to live for the moment and the pleasures, but instead to live those, to live with the gospel in mind. To, um, to live without fear so that our lives can be a sign to people of the truth that we have. So as the worship team comes up, I, I, I just want you to imagine for a moment as we get ready to do this next song. Imagine, picture, picture it being real that one day you will be in this throne room described in Revelation, that you will be before the throne of God. You will see him on all his glory. Imagine what it would be like to be able to, to offer to God your, the life that you live, anything that went well, offering that to him as, a, as, as you cast your crown before him. So, Father in heaven, we just want to, to um, we want to live lives such that when we stand before your throne, we're able to freely offer that to you. And we pray that you would speak to our hearts and give us such courage that we can do that now in this life. In Jesus' name. Amen.